Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 340. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 340 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated and Grammy-winning mixer-producer-engineer Colin Dupuy, who has worked with Lana Del Rey, St. Vincent, Dr. John, and the Black Keys, to name a few. And he is currently located in Nashville, Tennessee, where he speaks to us from his home studio, but originally from the great city of Detroit, Michigan. Colin Dupuy, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the emotions of gear. So in my last rant on episode number 339, I was discussing going full on into the world of Dolby Atmos mixing. Uh, That's going to require some gear acquisitions, primarily speakers, right? And in my case, with a 714 system, that's 12 speakers. That's a lot of speakers. Uh, I also discussed the fact that I do not want to go into debt for these speakers or any of the gear that will be acquired in this whole process. Like I said last time, this is working class audio. If I, the host, have not drank my own Kool-Aid of staying out of debt and doing all those good things that you should do, then I need to stop the podcast right now and get my act together. But... No need, because I'm not going to go into debt for it. So so I'm safe in that department. I do have the money in the bank to get the gear that I need. But here's the trick. I do not want to deplete that money, especially since I have numerous pieces of gear that I can sell that I just don't use very often. And that will fund this whole adventure. So rather than drain the bank account and, you know, get super low in the tank, you know, fuel, so to speak, I'm going to take what I have, in terms of gear and, you know, cash in my chips, so to speak. So rather than hold on to that gear, it's 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 truly time to move on from that gear. And at first, you know, I went through the many stages of gear grief, to be honest with you. I, I started to get pangs in my stomach when I thought about letting go of certain pieces. But then, you know, the whole, what if I need that piece of gear in some made up scenario just started to fall apart in my head. Because I identify that as the emotional aspect of gear attachment. I then get practical with myself and I say, when was the last time that scenario happened? And what do I really want to be doing? The short answer is, is I want to be mixing in Dolby Atmos and of course stereo and doing all that that I have done in the past. So all my decisions should be based on doing that task. For many of us, we can't get past that emotion. It's, it's very difficult, and I really empathize with you. I understand. For me, I had to get past that and stay focused on my goal. The goal being, get the new gear, uh, keep the money in the bank, and liquidate the old gear. Once we accumulate certain bits and pieces of gear over time, it, it really is hard to let go because it's it's almost like it's not quite a monument but uh, to to what we've done, but it's like a collection of tools that we can use here and there. And I I will cast no judgment on any of you for the decision-making that you have, but I just want to state that for me, 
I have these goals of how to get my new Atmos set up, and I'm going to make sure and remove the emotion out of the situation, which I know can be an obstacle based on my past decisions. And, you know, it may be very different for you. So no judgment there, just sharing my own particular quirks. No matter what your plans or goals are, I encourage you to try and recognize your past behaviors that have blocked you before. Rise above those and meet your own goals. I want to look at this gear that I have and recognize it as just a tool. That is all that this stuff is that I've got. So I'm going to liquidate it. I'm going to get my new stuff, still have some money in the bank, be in much more solid footing. And that's, that's my own personal goal. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Colin Dupuy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Colin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, nice having me. <laughs> so where are you talking to me from? I live in Nashville, Tennessee, but actually it's more like a suburb called Madison, but it's in Davidson County. So I'm like 15 minutes from downtown. Okay. Now that was a move that occurred, if I'm correct, a few years ago. And we'll get into that. Where did you yeah, grow yeah. up? I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, which is the capital city of the state of Michigan. And spent most of my, you know, most of my young life until my early adult life there living and learning about life and, you know, just doing living, doing stuff, getting interested in music. Just, I got interested in music, I think really super early, but yeah. My wife is from Dearborn. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Dearborn's great. I love that place. I've been to Michigan a few thousand times in my life. Of course. Yeah. So you you know that you have to know the Detroit area a little bit if you've been to Dearborn because it's pretty much connected to Detroit. Yeah. What I always found fascinating when I first got there was when we flew into Detroit, into the airport there, on the way to Dearborn, driving through the town known as Romulus. Romulus, yeah. Which I was like, like, who named this city? Like, is this like some Star Trek fan? (laughs) Yeah, this sounds totally like sci-fi. Like, there's, yeah, it's funny. Like, Romulus, like, is that a, but it's way before Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, that was, it's probably some hangover from French or something, because there's a lot of French stuff in Michigan, a lot of towns that have French names. It's like, who named Kalamazoo? Where did that come from? That's what I want to know. Oh my gosh, yeah. Romulus, Kalamazoo. To get get on the names of towns, like where did Kalamazoo come from? Right. Yeah. What language started that start in? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and not to go down a rabbit hole, but in New New Mexico, you've got truth or consequences. It's like- I love that place. I've been there a bunch of times. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Like, you've ever been there? Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Small little town has all these great, amazing bathhouses of all that mineral water that comes in from the the volcanic mountains nearby. Uh huh. I used to do deliveries for a fast food company growing up, so I'd drive a van to T or C to drop off a load from from the warehouse. So, yeah, long story. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We don't need it by just saying, yeah, I've been there a, a bunch. Like I, I know a little bit about that town. So, when did you get into recording? Living in Michigan. I started when I was in this kind of noise punk rock band with my friends. It started out with needing to make demo recordings, right? Mm-hmm. For ourselves, like just the interest of it. And plus my my friend, Norm Druce of Atomic Instruments. Oh, yeah. Who passed away. Yeah. He's my best friend. Like I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. Yeah, no, I, still I know go, of him. Still dealing with that. He and I were in a band. We lived together in a house. He was always a very technical person. He started building speakers back then, like designing monitors and speakers, playing around with crossovers. He was super into the recording, I think, more than I was. And then I I got bit by the bug by him. I think I got reintroduced to it because I had initially as a little kid, when I was five, my mom knew this guy named Glenn Brown, who runs a studio in Lansing, Michigan, Glenn Brown Productions. And he was working at a studio called Lansing Sound. And his really good friend... Sue and my mom were all friends. My mom's best friend was Sue, Sue Amison, and his, he was really good friends with Sue also. And so they all knew each other. So my mom took me to his studio in like the late seventies to this Lansing sound studio. So I was five years old. I got introduced to the visual impressiveness of a studio, right? You go in there and there's like buttons everywhere and this equipment and lights. So I have a memory of that. And then when I met Norm, we started playing music together. And then he was like, recording equipment, recording equipment. And then that reintroduced me to probably the thought that was in my head as a little kid. And then we went from there. We kept buying equipment. It just went from cassette 
four track kind of stuff to like quarter inch eight track false techs reel to reels to one of those Tascam 388s self-contained units i had one of those for a while and then it went to a msr 16 with a i think it was a soundcraft 200b which is actually a pretty cool sounding little side desk if you ever played with those soundcraft 200b's those things are actually really good sound the eqs are really functional it went from that to like the ms 16 one inch 16 track and a mackie board and went from that to a jh24 and an adm broadcast console and like we just kept buying more stuff and upgrading upgrading and we for a long time had a studio together and I'd record punk bands. He'd record weirdo bands and punk bands. And we'd all just shared this warehouse space in Owasso, Michigan, which is the weirdest place. Like it just kept going and we kept our friendship going and we played music together. And then the band kind of just fizzled out because that's just what happens over time. Mm -hmm. And we just kept as friends doing that. And then I kept trying to get more recordings under my belt. I just got more and more interested in it. When you guys were doing that, and you were like upping the ante on the gear over time. Where was your knowledge of, of recording techniques and inspiration coming from at that time? Just what we were listening to. Steve Albini was a big inspiration early on because of the way he made the Jesus Lizard record sound. Mm -hmm. Those records just have such an impact to them. You can turn them up really loud. That's the key to them. There's a lot of dynamics to stuff that he does. Like he doesn't ultra squash or ultra compress anything. So in the right context, it's really good for certain kinds of music. I think there's probably some other records that it's not the right thing because it needs to be compressed. Like some music needs to have the dynamics controlled in it. I think it's a stylistic choice, but he's slightly more, I think, would you consider dogmatic about it? He's just really, I don't want to compress anything. And that's fine. That's his choice. That's his way of doing things. He uses compression on a couple things mm -hmm. during tracking, but he doesn't it's just strictly because it's a level control. It's not to try to get the sound of it. It's not like, oh, I'm using this compressor to change the tone. I'm just doing it to keep it from getting too loud onto tape. But the records that really hit home for me were the Jesus Lizard records, the way those sound. Like when you listen to those records, the spatiality to it, the drum sounds, the way he used microphones to pull the room into the conversation and give you this imagery, this kind of big, huge, explosive sound mm -hmm. at the right moments in the song. So... That kind of drove us for a while. And of course, like Sonic Youth and like all the stuff we were into at the time and, you know, the Velvet Underground. So there's all these different things. So that influenced you musically and sonically. But as far as theoretical knowledge of... Which self-taught. Just self-taught. Okay. Just putting microphones up and experimenting. I mean, I would spend days in the studio when I didn't have a project. I just would sleep there. I'd spend days there playing with the equipment. Yeah. recording drums, recording weird ideas, like maybe like take up guitar pedals and run this thing in there and get this like feedback thing happening and like just record these like strange things happening to try to experiment with microphone placement, trying to create a vibe to something or work on some of our music and spend a lot of time trying to find a direction to push it in, not mm -hmm. really having any idea because right. they have all the time in the world. There's no responsibility in life at early 20s. So it's just like <laughs> yeah. have all the time in the world and just spend camping in the studio and learning how microphones react, playing around and getting into the early computer stuff too. Like I got a Digio One on a G4 and just started playing around with that, learning it. And then I went and started, I did get a little bit of formal training. I went back to Glenn Brown's studio in Lansing. I went to Lansing Community College. I took one recording class they had. It was like supposed to be only for students who are actually getting a degree. But I went to the professor and was like, 
I just want to take your recording class because I want to try to tie up some loose ends and maybe pick up some more knowledge. I'm just interested. Yeah. I'm trying to learn. This is like before YouTube, the internet, before you had any access to all this information that's available now. And he was like, what do you know about recording? I'm like, well, I have a one at 16 track. I'm a 16 and we have this board and I have four and four microphone AKGs and I have even recorded a couple records that have been released. And he's like, okay, <laughs> you can come in. Like, you just let me pay for the class and take it. Like, I didn't have to have a degree, be in some kind of degree program. He just wrote a little thing off and said, go ahead. And I came in, I did that. And then because of that class, we took a field trip to Glenn Brown studio. That's the meta of the whole conversation of this is that I took that class and that put me back into the world of Glenn Brown. I walked in and he was like, hey, I know you. I mean, he literally said that the moment I, I walked up and I coached, I showed up early because I wanted to talk to him. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask him questions. I didn't want to be like there with the class going, oh, I got a question. I was like, I'm going to show up 10 minutes early. I show up 10 minutes early. And he's like, hey, I know you. You're Colin Dupuy. I was just like floored, floored that he knew he like had that kind of memory could recognize me from a childhood. It was bonkers. So then we, of course, hit it off. And I just like laid it out to him like, hey, if you ever need someone to clean your toilets and take out trash and just be here, I want to learn how to do stuff. And he just, said, okay, come on. And he threw me in the deep end. He's like, here, wire up this patch bay. <laughs> like, it was just like. Wow. So definitely he was a, an early mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to record classical stuff. He's an acoustician too. So he like, builds and designs studios like M&M's 54 Sound and, and a bunch of other studios, Pearl Sound, like he's designed these studios. So I went with him and learned how to tune big Augsburger main systems uh-huh. using like the old pink filter pink noise method with sound meter. Like I went through it with him. It's interesting to me because, you know, sometimes you can run into, I'm sure there's a huge age gap between you and him. Yeah. 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 Big enough. Right. And sometimes you can run into some, we'll just call them grumpy old, old dudes. Right. And then there's those like in this case where they're super enthusiastic and they want to bring you in and tell you about everything. Yep. Yep. Totally open to share knowledge was just really inspiring to learn from because he loved, he, and he still worked I mean, he's still doing it. I mean, he just, I think he just won a Grammy recently mm. for something he's working on. So like he, he's still working and he loves it. He's in it. He's a lifer and he's super talented. He's an amazingly good engineer. I was very lucky to work under him because not only did he have a lot of knowledge and had made a ton of recordings, right? Like years and years of recordings before I even got back in with him. He also had a ton of equipment, real equipment and real microphones and really understood microphones and acoustics and rooms and all the things that you don't really learn easily. It's that stuff that takes a while. And I was self-taught up to that point. It really upped my game a lot with microphones. because I was started assisting sessions with him at his studio and started learning about recording violins and fiddles and things like acoustic instruments, like where not to put a microphone or well, there's no correct way, but just the more ideal places for putting microphones, you know what I mean? On instruments. How long has he been in business? Forever. I mean, he started doing engineering, I think maybe in the late sixties. But this particular place that you went to when you were five, is it the same place? That was a different studio. That was owned by another person, but he was the engineer of that studio. And that was in set, well, that was probably 78, 79 I went there. Okay. I was born in 74. I think he started in the 60s. Okay. Engineering. By the time I reintroduced myself into his world in the 90s, 
Imagine how many years he already had. Oh yeah, different scenario. And, and staying in business in a, in a market that is not a Smaller Los Angeles market, yeah. or or New York. Yeah, yeah. Like he's always booked. He still is always booked. He really knows what he's doing. He really is an amazing engineer. So it's like that thing where I was very lucky to grab a hold of some of that knowledge because he. I mean, it's like those things like gain staging that takes engineers years to learn. Like, oh, when you turn this mic preamp at this point, it starts to sound this way. And it's relationship impedance too, like all the real technical knowledge of the impedance of different compressors and the transformers and how those relate to each other and how that sounds by choosing different things. Like that's also something you learn Mm -hmm. over time. And it's like impedance was brought into the conversation. I didn't know about this stuff. I didn't understand that being self-taught. And he said like, oh, well, you know, when you take a pull tech and you put it on the output of this thing and the impedance is matching right, it changes the sound and it makes it sound better. It improves that same thing with using low impedance ribbon microphones on mic preamps that have a low impedance input transformer tap and going in on the 50 ohm tap and how it changes the frequency response of the ribbon mic and makes it sound better. You know, this is making me analyze the whole learning process with recording. So like, let me give you two scenarios and we can discuss. Yeah. But so you have the the student that maybe has never really touched any recording equipment. They go to, into yep. a school and they learn it from the ground up theoretical knowledge through books and through demonstration and field trips, et cetera. Then you have someone like you and myself who go at it, just dive right in. Yeah. Figure out, okay, I like this and I, and I understand this, but then we go to fill in our, our gaps in knowledge and go, oh, okay, I see. This is connected to this and this is how this works, blah, 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 blah. These how things really... Two yeah. very different styles of learning. And I, I don't have a, a comment or, a, or something to preach about here, but it is a very different way of doing things. And in your particular case, and I think it, it relates to my case as well, is just you get to a point where you're like, okay, I've learned everything I can learn and I still need to learn more. So then that's when you sometimes can seek formal education or seminars or YouTube videos or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think knowledge is important. I think trying to gain knowledge about anything you're into, how you get it. I don't think there's any right way of doing anything. I think that the best thing, this is just from my own personal experience, is that the best thing is that you want to learn. And as soon as you decide that's what you want to do, that you want to put energy into picking up this knowledge and, and memorizing it and taking, making it a part of you, then that's all you need. So where you get that information from doesn't matter. Of course, eventually over time, you vet that information and figure out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Mm-hmm. And because there are no rules other than keeping away from clipping your converters, unless of course you want to do that, but it just in general, you know, just basic kind of level stuff, like there's absolutely zero right way of doing anything. It's about the context of which you're working. So you have to, to deliver the context correctly. So if you're being hired to do a cello string section and they want realism, uh, they don't want extra effects put on it and things like that. They just want realism. Then you have to approach it from the, of trying to capture it that way versus like going, well, I'm going to put Neve 1073s on it and put boost EQ. It's like, no, you're going to go and get 
really nice, clear, omnidirectional microphones and really clean mic preamps. And you're going to put yourself in a room that sounds good. And then you're going to get a really great, clear cello recording, not complex. Yeah. But for like, say, some of the younger listeners who who are not pros yet, maybe they're even in school. It's just like, there's no one right way to do it. It depends on your exactly. personality. It sounds like you and I have a similar personality in that we just want to dive in and start getting to work and plugging things in. That's what worked for me the best. Me too. Yeah. 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 What led you to leave Michigan? What led you to Nashville? Well, I mean, we have to go give Detroit a little bit of props in my timeline, I think. I don't want to skip over Detroit because I think Detroit made a big, a really big impact on my ability to get to Nashville. Well, break it down for me. What happened there? So Lansing, I was doing a lot of stuff in Lansing. I was working in the studio in Owasso with Norm. And I was doing punk bands and metal bands and whatever it is that people, if someone was like, oh, get six, 600 bucks. I'd be like, okay, you get three days. Let's do it. And we cut three days of recording. And, and then I got a job. Glenn was like, hey, I'm, there's a studio, Rust Belt Studio, who's Al Sutton. If you don't know who Al Sutton is, he's Acme Audio, Compressors. Oh, okay, okay. The Wolf, Wolf, Wolf from DI and things like that. That's, right. that's Al Sutton. He was Kid Rock's engineer for years. He has this amazing, great studio in Royal Oak, Michigan called Rust Belt Studios. He's a super talented engineer, just a super cool guy, a good friend of mine. And his studio needed to be wired. And he was switching from whatever board, I think he had a Calrec in there, to a Neve broadcast board. So I came in and wired that studio because I was getting known for being able to do studio wiring, like the full deal, like the whole big picture studio wiring, all the patch bays, all the stuff. I was able to do that stuff. So I got hired by Al to do that. And I just, that kind of just went from there. Like I did Al's thing. And then by being in his studio, other people were coming and going and they recognized, you know, they saw me and I was introduced. And then another gig came up. Glenn Brown was like, Hey, there's this other gig. I'm building this studio for the Bass Brothers who are Eminem's producers, first album producers. And they did the eight mile soundtrack and stuff like that. Like, you know, these guys were moving from LA back to, to the Michigan area. So they bought a building around the corner from 54 Sound in Ferndale, Michigan. And so Glenn was designed the studio and goes like, you should be the guy who wires it. So I like went to them, Glenn introduced me and I went to them and said like, hey, I can do wiring. Like they're like, okay, you're on. And it just went from there. Like I, I did the wiring and then they're like, we need someone to be one of the house assistant engineers. I'm like, okay, I was in the right place at the right time. And all of a sudden I'm now in an SSL 4K room with an 88 input SSL, 96 output Pro Tools rig. This is like early 2000, 2001, 2002. Anything yeah. you could think of, they had all of it. They had four of everything you could ever think of in this mix room. And so I went from being, I just also now assisting in this room and doing all these hip hop and rap sessions, being the guy who ran Pro Tools, who set the microphones up, captured the vocals to this point where all of a sudden I started like everyone wanted to work with me because I was, I, I was willing to work crazy hours because young and I didn't care. I had no life and I didn't care about having a life at that point. I wanted to be in the studio. Literally, I was the person who worked mostly with most of the clients that came in because <laughs> the other engineers in work didn't want to work those hours. They were like, no, we don't want to work until nine in the morning. Right. You know, we don't <laughs> want to be there when they show up from the club at two in the morning when to start working. And I was like, okay, whatever. I don't care. I'll do it. That led to me doing a bunch of cool mixes, like learning how to mix on an SSL with Ultimation and learning how to how to work R&B vocals, multi-track R&B vocals into a mix and learning how to get drums to, to hit like that, to get that banging good low end and like how it's supposed to work and 
how to mix down onto an ATR 102 half inch deck to get that sound that ends up being a good released mix. And I just, same thing, a bunch of trial and error, spending 20 hours a day in that studio. Some of the sessions would get booked for, I'd get a month and a half booking at 20 hours a day. I'd literally, for like a month and a half, I, with one day off a week, I would sleep in the basement. Wow. Half the time. Because I just, I'd lose sleep if I was to drive back to my apartment in downtown Detroit. I would just sleep in the studio. Just from there, I went, I started working at Vintage King Audio in the tech department. I started learning about more technical stuff. I started recapping Neve consoles and Neve mic preamps and working on equipment. And Tim Mead, who was their head tech over there, taught me a bunch. I'd rewired like whole Neve consoles that were gutted. We'd get these consoles that would be the whole spinal cord of the board would be missing. And I'd take the blueprints and learn. Tim Mead would guide me and I'd learn to get it all back to how it was supposed to be a spec to the, using good Mogami consoles, wired, labeling it all. It's just bonkers kind of stuff. Did two or three knee boards like that, a couple of Calrex. And all in the meantime, also working at this hip hop studio. So it's like going back and forth between Vintage King, which was around the corner, literally up three blocks from it. Like, well, like this week I'm at Vintage King. This two weeks, I'm over here doing this hip hop session. Like it was like constant work led to other things. Then all of a sudden I got a gig when that studio slowed down and that started to peter out. I got a gig working for Carl Craig, who's a techno DJ who has a, runs a techno label. I wired his studio and then via doing the wiring, he saw that I was not a bad person to be around. You know, it's like, okay, this person can handle the workload. And I started doing remix work with him dance remix work. So I went from doing hip hop, R&B to like dance techno remixes of stuff. And then also now I'm traveling with him to Europe, going to Italy, Berlin, all these places doing front of house sound for these one-off experimental gigs where he'd do these free for all. He'd hire up some percussion from Iran and some piano player from Luxembourg and this other guy. And he's like running signals from their microphones into his rig and he's manipulating things. And it's all completely ad hoc experimental off the cuff and I'm doing front of house sound and stuff. I did all that stuff, like hauling his modular synth around Europe, staying there for two or three weeks at a time, getting a spot in Berlin and then flying to Italy and then going, it's like just kind of bonkers. All these things just kept happening. It sounds like you're getting a wide array of experiences, not only tracking and mixing, but doing tech work in front of house uh -huh. sound stuff and uh -huh. learning how to interact with people and just, it's almost like a grad school. Or a it's like, it, yeah, I was thrown in the deep end in like a grad school program. Like, here's the world. Yeah. Deal with it. Are you going to sink or swim? World. Yeah, here it is. Like, here's a situation where you're in Italy and you literally can't touch any of the microphones on stage because it's a union classical hall where you like literally like go over and to point like the mic on the snare drum tip <laughs> like this and you literally can't touch the microphones because you're yelled at by the stage manager. Huh. I walked over the first thing I tried to move a mic and he was like, and screaming at me in Italian. And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. Then someone explained to me, like, you have to tell this guy who's the stage engineer where you want to place it. So I'd be like sitting there going like, yeah, a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit more. Like <laughs> to position the microphones on the close mics on the snares and toms and stuff of the drum sets, Ugh. that kind of stuff. And then it, you know, the whole front of house gig, you're doing your thing and you want the room to move a certain amount, but then there's a, literally someone who's a representation of the local ordinance district standing there with the sound pressure meter, taking your master fader and turning it down every now and then. Cause the SPL meter that he has sitting there is it's, you're going over, he's literally just grabbing your master fader and turning it down a little bit every time that it would hit that, like these, all these regulations around it, because it's a classical hall and there's like the sound pressure level regulation. It's like all these things you're just dealing with 
And I even got to, like with Carl, I actually got to do Farnham House Sound for Movement Festival, which is this big Detroit outdoor music festival, right? right? Electronic dance music. With the PA from Thunder Audio, they had this insane PA where literally I could have probably killed people in the audience with it. Like it was so insanely powerful PA and just the feeling of driving that system and being in control of something with so much energy is kind of bonkers. That's a serious gig. I have a ton of mad respect for those front house people who deal with that day in and day out, these huge systems that knowing that they, to make the wrong move, they could damage a bunch of people's hearing because they have so much headroom in the system. Hmm. It's really crazy to, to experience that, to turn the low end a little bit and to feel change the environment around you because <laughs> it's so powerful. Let me throw a very typical working class audio question at you. So you're doing all this. Yeah. How are you making a living? I'm charging a fee yeah. and it's always discussed beforehand. I mean, the key to this is just having an open conversation in the beginning with all the people you're going to work with okay. as to what you expect to get paid and being reasonable. Like if they say, oh, that's over our budget right now, you go, well, okay, I can do it because I want to do the gig. Being reasonable and yeah, sure, whatever you want. And coming up with a standard of living for yourself. So you were making a living. Yeah, yeah. I was getting paid to do all this stuff. It wasn't like a ton of money, but it was something. But enough to survive. Yeah, of course. Especially in Detroit. Yeah, I was going to say, like every time I go to Michigan and we go out to breakfast or something, I'm like, I get the bill and I'm like, that's it. Did they get everything? But yeah, 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 exactly. The rent's the same. I mean, rent has gone up in Detroit a bunch, but still, like at that moment, I was paying maybe two fifty a month in rent. Jeez. Yeah, rent in Detroit. If you have, you find a spot. Like I was splitting a flat with my roommate Charlie. And it was a $500 three-bedroom upper flat in a place called Hamtramck, Michigan. Oh, yeah. And that's all utilities included, washer and dryer, the whole deal. Like, I was paying 250 a month. Huh. So I could make that in like one day of work. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Now, 
Tell me what you think about this. I have this perception of Michigan, and it's to me, it's like the classic place where the Midwest work ethic of the United States emanates from. Not to leave out, you know, uh, Illinois, but to yeah. me, there's there is a work ethic, there is a style that comes out of Michigan. How does that pertain in your particular situation? I would say, yeah. I mean, it's being that I came from what you consider poor family. My mom made a basic living and raised me by herself mostly. My stepdad came into the picture when I was in first grade, but he never earned a ton of money. Like they both together never had a household income above like maybe like at one point, maybe they made 50 grand a year household income. Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe, but most of my life it was super reduced. So the whole aspect of reality was you make do, you deal with it and you still live your life. Yeah. You don't shorten the experience in your life because you don't have a bunch of money. You figure it out. So you get really good at fixing stuff. You get really good at hands-on just going at stuff because you have absolutely no money to do something with. The learning, the process of learning, I think, and just the curiosity was actually, I'm, I'm glad that it was like that because it pushed me to not take anything for granted and not be complacent. Like yeah. any opportunity that opened up, no matter what the pay was, I said yes to it in my career. Mm-hmm. And I figured the money out later. My rate went up over time because I got more experience and, and they were bigger projects. And that's just the way it works. Well, there's also the winter thing too. Oh yeah. That alone is drives you to work hard. Well, it all, yeah, it drives you to indoors as well. And to a lot of thinking, a lot of exercising of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you're like, what do you do when it's cold outside? You stay inside and play around with recording equipment. And right. I think that's a big part of the, the Detroit electronic thing. The whole thing with the techno scene and just the music scene there in general. Like, I mean, this is goes back beyond even techno, but techno is a big part of it is this city that is been downtrodden for years. And so the only place is upward, right? For all the people who creative there, there is no downward. You're already living in the downward. You're in the most downest point in the whole country as far as like economics, life, food desert. I mean, just so many aspects of the city living that the the artistic minded individual can only really push boundaries and experiment from that point. You're not in this industry because there's like this built-in industry that's make, making you a bunch of money. You're literally doing it because that's what you want to do. And yeah. it's interesting. And it's, I think where, why there was a lot of really interesting experimental music coming out of Detroit and always coming out of Detroit, like the electronic thing, Parliament Funkadelic. Talking yeah. about an experimental rock band, right? A band that took funk and soul and rock and roll and mashed it together and took acid and did all these things like to create a new thing and to experiment. And that is because of Detroit. It's because of the individuality of it, the fact that you could do that, that it was acceptable in the music world to blend things together in that environment, at least from what I gathered, it was always okay within the city to just kind of do your own thing and come up with it. Historically, there's just been so many unique and creative acts that have come out of there. I mean, there's so much. Yeah. I mean, the, the Parliament Funkadelic, I mean, just Motown itself, like the whole you just, yeah, it's mind blowing, really, if you think about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even, that's a whole nother podcast in itself is the most. So you just say thing. Stevie Wonder, and that's all you need to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Ray Charles. I mean, just say these bass, is just Aretha Franklin. I mean, United Sound Recordings, 
that studio in downtown Detroit that was there before Motown, where Aretha did a lot of her early stuff and a lot of really, where Parliament Funkadelic did Maggot Brain and all that. Yeah. That is a huge moment in history. Yeah. Recording history. So I think what Detroit gave me and what I learned from it and just the survival there and living there. And like, I lived in the city on purpose because I didn't want to be like, oh, I live in the suburbs where it's safe. I want to live here because I want to be a part of the city totally. I want to experience this while I'm here. And plus, it's just more fun down here. And you're, it's more parties to be had. And you just get more connected to the underground scene of things that go on. And so there's a bunch of great times I've had living there. To move on, so that you were saying, how did I get to Nashville? So I was working for Carl Craig. Again, the technician thing was a part of me getting my foot in the door of Dan Auerbach. He called me on the phone because Tim Mead, the tech over at Vintage King, said, Colin, this guy knows how to wire studios and he's pretty adept at trying to figure stuff out and he's pretty available because I was always freelance. I never wanted to be a full-time employee at Vintage King or a full-time employee at a studio. I wanted to have the opportunity window always open for me. I always wanted to leave and I want to have control of my schedule so that I could leave that window open so I could say yes to something if something came along. Right. I always kept that in the back of my mind. Keep the window of opportunity open and be a freelancer and get good with technology and not really try to run a studio and buy and open a studio because I saw that as a constant money pit. And I was like, all right, if I can avoid doing that (laughs) and I can just own equipment that's portable enough and move it around, I could take up shop in a house or in a warehouse space or whatever to do a record and just move the cart the gear in. So I really early on adapted to using a laptop and getting interfaces and just learning how to do stuff with a native rig early, early on. Yeah. So like Dan called me to wire up his studio in Akron. Same thing. I wired up the patch base. It's got him going on his stuff. He's like, hey, I got this piece of gear and this piece of gear. Can you fix this? I'm like, I'll try. And so I went from fixing pieces of gear. All of a sudden, I was, there was a one-inch eight-track Scully machine in my studio space in Detroit. And it was just like, that kept happening. He kept throwing stuff at me. And I would go down to Akron and I did a couple recording sessions with him when he needed extra assistance, sleep on his couch. And then he called me one day and was like, hey, I'm... I'm moving to Nashville and opening a studio. Do you want to help me get it started? I had no idea that what he meant was, will you move to Nashville? It was just, will you come help me get the studio running? So I came there, wired the studio, got the quad eight board installed. Like I did all of the stuff, all the equipment, get all outboard, pinged out. But I had two weeks to do it because the Black Keys are about to come in there and start recording. So it literally was like an empty studio, two weeks get it all wired up, hook up all this equipment that you've never used before. And I've never used, cause he's like, I just bought this quad eight boards coming in. And oh yeah, he, can you go to get the board for me? I went and drove to like North Carolina and picked this board up with a U-Haul truck, this quad eight board and brought it back and wired it up and fixed things that were wrong with it. Replaced a couple arch card edge connectors that ha- were broken over time. Like literally just did all these things to it to get it up and running for a black keys record. That ended up being their big six Grammy gold on the ceiling record. <laughs> Just like bonkers like that. And then I was the assistant engineer because Kenny Takahashi was Brian Burton, Danger Mouse's engineer. And that's, that's the way it is. I was there helping making sure that Kenny could understand how all this equipment worked. I think me and Dan did like one record before to test the waters a little bit. It was like one record we did with somebody before the Black Keys record, but it wasn't like a big deal. It was just more like, let's see if this shit works first. Right. Kind of record. What convinced you to to stay in Nashville? Working 85 hours a week nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> one record after one record after another getting booked. Yeah. And going, hey, this word's coming in. Hey, we're doing this Dr. John record. Like just 
It just wouldn't stop. What did you yeah. do? So what did you do to sublet? Uh, you sublet. Did you leave a bunch of gear in Detroit? I just last year moved that studio that I had in Detroit. I had a space shared with friends just last year. I had moved that stuff down. I've been down here for 12 years. Oh, wow. I was renting because uh, the rent in this space was so cheap. I was splitting it between five friends. We're all splitting this space and that space, the owners of the building are refurbishing it. So we had to move out. And that was the only reason why, because I was, I'm like, was paying $75 a month to have a recording studio in Detroit. Well, that that's not bad. $75 no, yeah. a month. Yeah. Each of us paying $75 oh was the total. Rent. Like, it was crazy. So culture between Detroit and Nashville, very different. Yeah. Yeah. Did it take you long to get acclimated? I mean, I've never really gotten acclimated because it's not my gig. I just work. Like I, now I'm mixing records out of my UC studio behind me. Like this is my mix room I built in my garage. And all the work that comes to me is because of all the name I've built. I stopped working for Dan because I started getting so much work. I mean, it, I got booked to do a record and then I get the phone call from his management. I thought he was going to be gone on tour for a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden he's like not on tour for something happened to Pat. Pat hurt his arm or something like that. So like Dan books us a recording session and I'm already in a recording studio with another band and I'm like, I can't do it. So they found someone else and I was replaced and that was it. One time you say no to people and they're like, Boop, we found someone else. And then that was just it. Yeah. I guess that's kind of how that works, huh? Yeah. When someone at the level that Dan Auerbach operates at wants something, he gets it. And it's just how it works. And when you're operating at the level he's operating at, there's no time to mince words and, and worry about it. It's just like, okay, let's do this. Yeah. So yeah, there it is. There's creative things that they want to get done and they know right now, at that level yeah. that they can snap their fingers and make it happen. Oh yeah. Yeah. The money's not the issue. There's 30, engineers in Nashville that would love that gig. Right. Of course, there's a bunch of 22-year-olds that love to work 25 hours a day and are available. So like, it wasn't that big of a decision-making for them to do that. I mean, it's just the way it is. I get it. Yeah. So, I mean, just a comment from you on loyalty. Does that just not exist in your experience? I don't think that loyalty exists in creativity. I think that creativity has its own stream. And you're either a part of the team on that at that moment in time or you're not. And it's just really how it works. You have to learn to not take it personal because it really isn't personal. The creative juices are flowing and whoever at that moment in time can fill the shoes and allow the creative flow to keep happening, then that's who gets to do it at that time. And I think that loyalty in the sense like relationship, say a non-professional friendship that kind of thing would be considered a backhanded move because you wouldn't be being loyal to your family or friends, whatever. But in a professional friendship that is built strictly around getting this job done of making a record, that is supersedes everything. The sound that the the direction I helped Dan form in his studio, they're still using the exact setup. I guarantee you that they didn't unpatch the patch bay and they haven't because it was working really well. We'd made a bunch of records. So I can claim the responsibility of how that sound got developed. Dan is the architect of it in, in his mind, in the way he communicates, but I'm the technician, the engineer who helped that architecture see the light of day. So I, hmm. I can claim that the sound that comes out of EZI sound even to this day was largely informed by those five and a half years I worked for him. And this brings up another point that I'd love to discuss with you in that Okay, so you can be the, you know, like you say, the technician and, and the person that's assisting someone like Dan Auerbach. 
And if you're not available, they'll replace you at the drop of a hat. There's that's just how it is. Right. So there's that yeah. way of, of formulating your career, you know, being the on-call person or the the one that helps facilitate. But then the, there's the other part where you can create more of an identity for yourself and become an in-demand person that people seek out. Yeah. So and there's those two those, now. those yeah. two different paths. It depends on what you're trying to do. Like I think as an audio engineer, if you're not getting into production, if you're becoming a producer and that's your goal because you find that that's your talent lies mm-hmm. is being more of a producer, then you should try to do that more. You should put more of your energy into that part of the craft and hire good engineers to, so you don't have to think about that stuff. And if you're going to wear both hats, that's great. There's some people who can just totally do all of it themselves. You usually establish that early on in your career, I think. I think that the direction you're going to go in your career in this business is you're going to be driven towards something you're into more, I think. Mm-hmm. I got more into mixing. To me, like recording, the engineering tracking side was mixing because that's how I've always approached it. I literally approach capturing the sounds as the final mix right from the beginning. So compression EQ, whatever process I got to do to get it so that that source, that sound sounds exactly how I intend it to be in the middle of the mix. So mixing's always been a part of the picture to me. So I've now just, that's what I'm doing is mixing because it's part of the deal. Back to this point I'm, I'm making about, you know, the different roles. It's always interesting to me, if you think of, you know, some famous record, okay, let's say Rolling Stones, Some Girls, or Tattoo You. A great record. Tattoo You is an amazing record. I don't know who tracked it, but I certainly know who mixed it. Exactly. I think career-wise, if you can get into the mixer seat, then obviously that's a good choice because you're going to be recognized more. It's definitely, the tracking engineers definitely do not get any of the glory in the real reality. And if you're good, if you're a really good tracking engineer, what needs to be mixed is barely needs to be mixed. For instance, like I'm not going to try to claim the final outcome of it, but I'd say that Cage Elephant record I did with Dan Auerbach and actually all the records I did with Dan Auerbach, whoever mixed it, it was 87 to 90% mixed by the time they got it. I guarantee you that because I could play you the rough board mixes and you'd be like, well, that sounds really close to what was the final mix. And we were just stem mixing on a Spectra Sox board with some basic EQ, like boost a little top end here, boost a little low end here. And that was the board mixes. And so like Tom Elmhurst mixed that Cage Elephant record, but what Tom got was really refined. Yeah, It wasn't like, here's these really rough multi-tracks, figure it out for us. It was like, here's the song and what we expect it to sound like. And that's how, that's how it works. As a tracking engineer, you should be doing that. But I also think the industry is really bad at giving the tracking engineers more of the credit when they actually do the right things and make it become what it becomes. And that's just the way it works too. Unless it's like a very unique sound to the tracking. And I'll just, I always refer to, to Chad Blake, you know, Chad's got a very unique way to record things as well as mix yeah. things. So unless you stand out like that, and I mean... Chad's one of a million. Yep. So, but that is interesting that just that division of labor and how the tracking engineers just don't get the same glory that the mix engineer does. Probably because like a lot of tracking engineers don't actually don't do a lot to for, inform the sound. Like some do. There's people who really, they're there and they understand the production needs to be, end up being where it is. It needs to get to the, the song needs to get to the point where it sounds like the song needs to sound. 
yeah. and the tracking engineer is helping inform that along with the producer. And those engineers do because they keep getting work. So obviously they are, they're, they're, because they're taking risks, you know, like Sean El- Everett takes a lot of risks. Yeah. I'm not saying compare myself to Sean Everett, but like if you listen to any of the records that I've worked on, they sound the way they do because I took those risks in that moment. The sound of Lana Del Rey's ultraviolence sounds like that from the tracking side. It right. does not sound like that from the mixing side. I guarantee if you opened up that Pro Tools session, you'd be like, fuck, this sounds like this just by itself. Right. There was like maybe some EQ plugins on tracks and stuff. Like the source material is how it is while tracked. So where is it that you're at today? Let's, let's kind of g- give me a state of the state for Colin here. Where do you find yourself at now career-wise? Your studio, where you want to go? What are your challenges? What's it like now? I mean, the business is constantly changing. So right now, most of the money is sitting in the pop R&B world right now, like as far as production and mixing and tracking. Where the budgets are right now for is trap and rap and R&B and and pop music. So I don't do too much of that because that's not something I've really done a lot of, right? So I'm more in what you would consider like the working class audio pay, pay scale. Like I'm doing rock and interesting experimental music and that's getting some good press, indie rock, it gets good press, but the reality is the budgets aren't there in those records at all compared to like when I have counterparts in LA who are doing, they're like, oh yeah, like we, I just, I just do vocal tracking mostly and I'm, you know, and they're getting paid seven fifty a day to be engineers in rooms, just tracking people singing into auto tune into that kind of basic vocal R&B production stuff where it's just not, I shouldn't say basic, but just, you know, just tracking the stuff, getting the ideas down and then being good at vocal aligning the stuff and auto-tuning the stuff and getting it to sound the way it does and then getting the, the rough mix to sound pretty good, but it still ends up being handed off to Manny Marquin or one of the big mixers anyways. So like they don't really get as much of a say in it. They're just kind of a cog in the machine, really. Mm-hmm. They're feeling it a thing, but the pay is crazy good because there's so much money floating in that right now. Yeah. But like rock and roll bands, even on major labels are given 40 grand to make a record. That's like all included, like booking the studio, recording it, hiring a mixer, mastering. That's not much money for six individuals to live off of for any period of time and book the studio and pay the people. It's like, Oh, I could do wonders with a 40 grand budget. Yeah. You know, (laughs) we all could, but you know what I'm saying? Like to be something signed to a label, Sure. That, that is oh yeah, like, it's the disparity yeah. is huge. Yeah, yeah, it's disparity is huge when like Chris Brown gets probably a five hundred thousand dollar budget to make a record, and <laughs> rock and roll bands. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not disparaging anything that any of these people do, but that's just the industry. That's mm-hmm. where the mindset in the music business is. So like, I mix a lot of rock and indie rock and self released stuff for people. I do some into the into the hip hop world just a little bit every now and then, but not a ton. And so I'm just at the pay scale that that provides. I mean, there's big time hitters who do rock and roll stuff and those guys get really good money. But I would say I'm, I'm just in your middle class, like earning right now. Like, and that's fine. I love working on the music I work on. It's just what it is. Yeah. And it's once again, I think that you, you are a person like myself who favors their autonomy, their freedom yeah, to dictate their schedule. And you seem happy. You seem at, at peace with like, okay, well, I'm going to do this and this is what it's going to pay, and but I'm in control of my schedule and my world. Yeah, I definitely, like, a, like every conversation I have with everybody, it's like, 
especially because of COVID, it's like the timelines of things, I'm not going to turn it around quickly. I don't work fast anyways. I have to feel the song. I have to emotionally understand it. So I have to kind of listen to it a, a bunch of times to kind of get it into my head of what the song is doing. Like, where is it going? So when I'm making mix choices, it's not just blanket, slam it out. Like, you know, I can mix a song in three hours, but I still have to learn it before I get that three hours in. So I probably spend more time listening to it. And then usually some songs will happen quickly where you literally can like within a couple hours, it's like almost completely done because it's, it comes together because that song just comes together. But then there's other ones where it's a puzzle and you, I got to figure it out. To this day, the way you operate, do you think that you're coming from a family that wasn't wealthy and spending a lot of time in your 20s in Detroit and developing a great work ethic, but also working in a very you know, middle-class, working-class kind of way, has that informed how you operate now? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I don't find myself on Reverb or eBay trying to buy more equipment. I don't try find myself trying to get my inspiration for what I do via the equipment. I find myself trying to get the inspiration from what I do via how the sound is coming out of the speakers. And since I mix completely inside the box, outside of running stuff into the modular synth that's behind me, which is just ADAT light piped in, I can like route stuff to the ADAT light pipe CV audio conversion boxes that are made by uh, expert sleepers, excellent devices. These can send stuff in back and forth via ADAT. It gets its clocking from the ADAT uh, pipe itself, and it's great. And so sometimes when I find myself trying to find a really super freaked out psychedelic thing needs to happen, then I'll run it into the modular synth and just patch away and spend like a, you know, a little bit of time on that until something starts to come back at me that I can't do with the plugins. But I can do 99% of the work I do completely with plugins at this point because I think that we've hit that point mm -hmm. in technology. You strike me as a saver and not a spender. I've spent too much money. I blew a lot of money on building this room. I built a really well-designed acoustically, like I designed the room because I learned a lot from Clem Brown about room acoustics and I actually done some studio design for other people too, just because that's another thing, like room acoustics. So I spent a lot of money on this build out. I built it myself outside of laying the drywall myself. I did all the framing and I had the roof of the garage raised three or four courses of block and I had a company come and do that another company tear the roof off and put a new roof on. That was done by someone else, but the internal room was built by me and a couple of people helped put some time in laying drywall because you can't do that yourself. It's pretty hard to do. I hate drywall. <laughs> yeah, but there's like, you know, there's three layers of drywall right. and a layer of fiberboard and a layer of OSB. Yeah. So it's like soundproof. So I wanted to build a soundproof room that I could literally just turn speakers up anytime of the day or night as loud as I wanted and not have my neighbors hearing anything and dealing with living in the suburbs and having people go like, I hear music coming from this house all the time. <laughs> that was my main goal. I didn't care about whether or not sound leaks into here, which is inversely what happens when you build a soundproof room. It's more about just, I wanted a room that acoustically would sound really good. I could work quickly and efficiently and easily because the room itself is not messing with me. That it's decently even and uh, I would not say flat, but just musically even. Things don't jump out because of the room. And that's it. So I needed a good pair of conversion, a prism converter that's in my DAC, an excellent pair of speakers that Norm Drews designed for me. I built custom pairs, three-way passive monitors that can run with single amps. 
a real basic system, but it's just like a connectivity between the speakers, the Pro Tools session, and a conversion that's completely transparent that doesn't have any sound of its own. Mm-hmm. And some people argue that Prism does, but from what I could tell, it it reproduces really well what's there and gives me a good idea of what's right and wrong with something, and that's it. And then everything else is just what I can do with the creativity with the digital tools in front of me. And that's just, that's strictly it for me. Like I probably will never go back to mixing outside of the box because literally we don't need to do that. I've proven it. Like go listen to the last seven years of albums I've mixed and none of it's been mixed on any analog gear at all. All of it. And I think no one can complain about, none of those artists complained about the way it sounded. So, (laughs) you know, they didn't, and they didn't ask. They don't like, what are you mixing on analog board? All they want is, can they make a change whenever they want to make a change? And will that be the only change that they hear? That's exactly. all they want. Well, we are out of time. Tell me, where can people find out more about you? I have a webpage called com. I'll include a link in the show notes. It's straightforward. It, it's a basic webpage. It shows my work I've done. It has a little bit of a bio. I have a page with some photos and stuff. Like I don't keep up on it enough, but it's enough information. You can gather of what the spectrum of work that I've done as a contact page. So if you want to hire me, there's two two different forms. One, if you want to hire me and one, if you just want to ask me questions. If you got a question about something, an album, like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably answer it as long as you're not trying to get me to do another whole podcast via an email conversation. <laughs> but, you know, but, but yeah, just, okay. yeah, I don't, and then people do that. Some people are now, now I'll get to say a question like, I love this album. Like, what about this? I'm like, yeah, I answer the question. Okay. Not a big deal. Same with social media. Like I'm on Instagram. Okay. Ask me questions. Get a hold of me. Well, for the audience, I'll put links to all of Colin's social media and uh, website there in the show notes. Colin, it's great to meet you. And yeah, uh, it was great. We'll meet in person at some point in the future. Are you coming to Nam this summer? Or are you not? I'm. I am going to skip Nam this summer because I've got some some family obligations. But I will be back to Nashville at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hit, hit me up when you are, because uh, yeah. I'm here. Like I literally just, this, I do it. This room and my, my toddler and my wife, that's all I do, especially because of COVID. It's just been hang out with my daughter and my wife and mix records. But yeah. Well, right on. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Colin Dupuis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you do like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review or Apple Music, I guess it is called these days. So whatever it is, stop on by, leave a five-star review. If you feel so compelled, write something. You know, if you are inspired by the show that much, I really would appreciate it. It definitely helps us out. That's all for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there 
with his fantastic voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.